Hello, and welcome back to Behind the Knife. I am your host for today, Michael Vu. So I've been watching this show called The Nick on HBO. It's about surgery in New York City circa 1900, and the main character is based loosely on William Halstead. Uh, this is uh, not an endorsement of the show. It's been, you know, uh, dead for a while, um, and I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of it. Somehow I, however, am just learning about it, and it is an awesome show. An early episode I recently watched featured an arm flap rhinoplasty for a woman with severe syphilis, and I thought, man, plastic surgery can do some really cool stuff. Fittingly, today's episode is another entry in our plastic surgery miniseries, and it's all about the basics of flap-based reconstruction. And this episode is made possible by our sponsor, Green Chef, the world's number one organic meal delivery service for eating well. So have you ever called up plastic surgery for a consultation and they start talking about how they're going to consider doing like a reverse flow flap or a chimeric flap? And whenever they start talking about perforator flaps, I mean, what exactly is a perforator vessel? I mean, in my mind, presumably, you know, vessels big and small all around the body perforate all sorts of things, but they can't all be perforator vessels. Well, the answers to these questions and many more are brought to us by our guest today, Dr. Anton Fries. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fries. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah. It's, our, it's absolutely our pleasure. Dr. Fries is a plastic surgeon at UT San Antonio, where he is currently the interim chief of the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. He received his MD at Cambridge and then served for 20 years as a medical officer in the Royal Navy, where he trained as a plastic surgeon. His military career took him across the globe, including to two combat deployments to Afghanistan. He did further fellowship training in microsurgery at Changgung University in Taipei, and has since become a world leader in reconstruction surgery. Uh, Dr. Fries, uh, that's quite um, a, a work history. Uh, tell me more about your experience in the Royal Navy. How, I, I'm actually, I don't think we have a lot of English surgeons on the podcast, and I'm curious to know what your, uh, what your training has been like and, and you, how, how you've evolved your career to where you are today. Yeah, thank, thanks, Michael. Well, I don't know where the last 20 years or the previous 20 years went, but um, you know, it, it's been a blur and a lot of those things just kind of clocked up. I, essentially, we, we finish our training at uh, medical school and, and do some time in the, in the ER, and then, um, and then we join a, uh, a unit so as a general, general duties medical office, which I think is a bit different to how the US system, but basically we spend three years um, essentially as a kind of primary care physician, either on surface ships, uh, submarines, or, or in my case with the Royal Marine uh, Commandos. So I spent uh, three years with them where I earned my Green Beret to serve alongside them and, uh, and deployed with them across the globe, wherever they went. And that, and that could be uh, from Afghanistan itself uh, but also it, it, it was trips to the Arctic uh, where we work with, with the NATO forces on the northern flank of NATO uh, or indeed the Himalayas. We went with the Indian paratroopers. So it was pretty varied. Sounds like you've been to a lot of exciting places. And you know, and uh, most of our listeners probably know too, that a lot of BTK's hosts, including myself, have the privilege of serving the U.S. military in our day jobs as well. So you're in good company. Um, tell me, how did the Royal Navy handle your plastic surgery training? Yeah, so back in the UK, we don't have any military uh, hospitals anymore. So we're trained alongside our civilian counterparts, uh, although uh, there's the, we have some benefits in terms of uh, access to sort of military research, which is how I ended up in San Antonio, as I spent almost two years based at Fort Sam Houston uh, working there. Um, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, I guess I started out uh, in the military hospital doing some general hosp uh, general surgery training, and um, uh, for two years, and then we subspecialize. And um, yeah, my passion was was reconstructive surgery. After seeing uh, what what the my mentors at the time were able to achieve with some of the soldiers who'd returned from Afghanistan. I suspect your time at um, Fort Sam Houston is ultimately what led you to, to currently residing in and being the, uh, the, the chief of the uh, plastic surgery uh, division at uh, UT San Antonio. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Texas really got under my skin. It's, uh, I don't know if it's the, the people or the weather or the wide open spaces. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it was growing up on a small island where it rains most of the time, but uh, yeah, ab absolutely. And uh, I went back to the UK, finished my training and got a faculty post uh, there. And then, uh, yeah, 
when my 20 years ended, I uh, was lucky enough to get back here, which I've, I've loved every minute of it. That accent must really turn heads too in the, in the middle of Texas. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have to tone it down a bit. Sometimes people can't understand what I'm saying. You know. <laughs> What's your practice like right now? Well, we're, we're a very small division, and uh, so we're very, very general. We cover uh, pretty much the whole scope of plastic, plastic surgery. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of hand surgery, hand trauma, uh, maxillofacial trauma, breast reconstruction, lower extremity reconstruction, uh, but, but then you know, the full gamut. So you know, with respect to general surgery, um, I very recently did a, a VRAM flap for an APR resection. I know Dr. Agarwal was discussing that on your podcast recently. Yeah, absolutely. My last free flap last week was for the neurosurgeons to cover an open uh, defect of the skull. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're really, um, we're, we're, one of that was one of the reasons I wanted to come back. Is we're, we're true uh, general plastic surgeons, all ages, uh, head to toe reconstruction. It's fantastic. That is fantastic. And it is extremely topical because that's why I brought you onto the podcast today is to talk about uh, flaps, flap surgeries, and, and the magic that plastic surgeons um, can accomplish when, when we consult you for you know, these, these sometimes really, really challenging soft tissue de deficits. Um, perhaps I'll, add, I'll, I'll start by asking you, I mean, just for you know, listeners who might be totally unaware that plastic surgeons do this kind of thing, because you know, for a lot of people, plastic surgery is like nip tuck, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, what, why, why do plastic surgeons do flap surgery? What is flap surgery? That's a great question. And uh, of course, to me, it seemed blindingly obvious. And I, then I thought about how to explain it and realized it's not, not as easy as you first think. Um, but uh, as Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, then uh, it means you don't understand it yourself. So I'll, uh, I'll give it a go. Basically, it's to do with reconstructing complex wounds. So wounds where you can't sew the edges back together uh, or you can't cover the, the defect using a simple skin graft um, because you have to import vascularized tissue from elsewhere. So there's certainly more to it than just the size of a wound. It, it, it's more to do with uh, the structures you're, you're needing to cover. So for example, things where a skin graft won't take, so exposed bone, uh, exposed tendons, heavily irradiated tissue, all these sorts of areas where uh, you, you can't simply put a skin graft on or close the wound under tension. Um, perhaps that example I gave at the beginning of, of, the, of the brain and dura uh, is, a, is a good example. So those are, uh, th that's the main reason why you'd have to use, use a flap um, to do the reconstruction. And some flaps are of course functional in themselves. So you might take a muscle uh, like the gracilis to reconstruct a, a biceps or an extensor mechanism of the lower, lower limb. And that has an intrinsic function or indeed a, a toe transfer has intrinsic function as, as a digit with functioning joints and sensation. So you've said that you know we'll, you'll often use a, a flap to address a soft tissue deficit that is uh, more substantial than perhaps one that you would otherwise simply cover by a skin graft. And that leads me to ask you um, to clarify, what is the difference, broadly, conceptually speaking, between a flap and a graft? Because... You know, sometimes I feel like medical students and, and a lot of the maybe the, the younger residents, this distinction is unclear and sometimes the terminology is misused. What is the difference? Flap versus graft? Absolutely. And it gets very frustrating when, when uh, that nomenclature is, is mistaken because, of course, a, a flap that's a graft is, is actually dead. Um, so so in, in summary, a, a, a graft is dead and we hope it will come back to life, whereas a, a flap is alive and we hope it won't die. So when people describe our free, free flaps as grafts, we get, we get very upset. So a graft can be typically skin, but also it can be fat, it can be bone, and all these things can be used as grafts, and they rely on the vascularity of the recipient bed to achieve their engraftment, which is why um, something which, which has a very poor blood supply, i.e. Uh, bone without any periosteum or tendon without any um, epitendon, uh, won't support a graft. Uh, it's why, for example, if you fat graft in a heavily irradiated base, then the fat that you've put to graft there, a lot of that simply won't take and it will just, it will all uh, re reabsorb. So uh, that, that's effectively the difference, whereas a, a flap has, an, has its integral blood supply that um, it, it may be from, from its adjacent position or it may be a, a 
free flap that you've taken from somewhere else and and plumbed into the to the recipient site. Um, but that that's what give, gives it, it its power compared to a, a grafting technique. I actually have never heard of that description before, but I love it. A flap is something that is alive and you hope doesn't die. And a graft is something that is dead that you hope comes back to life. You hope that blood vessels will grow, regrow back into that graft. That That's awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, part of the thing that I think sometimes confuses people about, about that that flap graft distinction, um, the nomenclature, and, and you've alluded to it, is that there are such things as free flaps where you know, the, the blood supply is intact, but you've kind of, you've obviously divided it and now you've got to put it back together. Can you talk to us more about, you know, pedicled versus free flaps? What, what, what is this distinction and um, how, how do you guys do those kinds of surgeries? Absolutely. So effectively a free flap or a microsurgical procedure is, is any uh, procedure where a flap is detached from its uh, known uh, blood supply, the neurovascular pedicle is, is divided and then it's reattached uh, elsewhere onto recipient vessels. And that's, well, some people do it under loop magnification, but, but typically under a microscope. So the confusion can be many free flaps can be used in a pedicled manner. So for example, one of the very earliest free flaps to be described was the latissimus dorsi muscle. And of course that's very commonly used not as a free flap, but as a pedicle flap for breast reconstruction, where the dissection is almost identical. Uh, you re well, once you reach the neurovascular pedicle, instead of dividing it and moving it somewhere else in the body, you uh, pedicle or, or pivot the flap uh, into the chest to cover the uh, the breast area, uh, leaving its blood supply uh, intact. So that that's um, that's an, an a neat example. Because uh, clearly, for example, if you're using a, the latissimus for, to cover a lower extremity wound, you would divide the thoracodorsal vessels that supply it and then um, plumb it back in to one of the vessels in the lower extremity. So do I have it right in saying that it's, it's often a matter of can that flap, can that pedicle reach on its pedicle the area that you need it to be filling the, the, the defect? And if you can't get it to reach, then well, you'll need to consider a different pedicled solution or you'll need to use a free flap. You'll need to divide that pedicle and, and you'll have to do a microsurgical anastomosis to get that flap to survive where you need it to, to sit. Exactly right, exactly right. But, there are, but actually you can extend that, that uh, your point because you, there are only certain recipient vessels available to you. And so you're, often your choice of free flap might be based on the pedicle length. So certain flaps, and we may discuss these later. So the, uh, the, the LD, latissimus dorsius, has quite a long pedicle. The anterolateral thigh flap has a very long pedicle. The gracilis flap has a relatively short pedicle and that affects their versatility. Um, and if you're short on pedicle length, you either have to choose a different flap or use a vein graft to try and uh, get from your recipient vessels to where your flap's gonna sit. When I crack open uh, my, my plastic surgery handbook, uh, the first thing I see in the flaps chapter is uh, a bunch of crazy diagrams of, of skin incisions, and then they're moving the skin in different ways. And these are called flaps too. They're kind of different from what we've been talking about, the latissimus dorsi flap and you know these big muscle flaps. It seems like they're just kind of moving around skin and it seems like a, like a very basic kind of flap. So perhaps we'll start there. Tell us yeah. about what these random skin flaps are. Why do they why are they called random, and um, and how, how do you do them? What are the principles of, of keeping these these uh, these flaps alive? Yeah, well, these are uh, although they, they they sound simple, actually, they can be an incredibly elegant way of reconstructing wounds, particularly around the head and neck, and particularly after skin cancer excision. And if you want to achieve uh, a cosmetic uh, outcome, um, then they really are the the way to go. Uh, the skin above the clavicle is a so called blushing skin and so if you replace that with a for example a free flap from the leg um, you end up with a, a patch of white leg skin which doesn't behave anything like the skin of the head and neck whereas uh, some of these local flaps uh, can give you very very uh, elegant uh, reconstructions but the the term random refers to the fact that they don't have a named angiosome or a named blood supply and uh, you're relying on the the width and to length ratio of the flap uh, for it to, to um, for it to maintain its vascularity, and uh, you're also relying on your essentially you're you're transferring laxity from one area uh, to another in a kind of in a geometric manner, 
to close these sorts of defects. So flaps you might be thinking of, things like uh, rhomboid flaps, hatchet flaps, bilobe flaps, these sorts of things, which are kind of the workhorses. And then these some of the other uh, geometric designs, so uh, the Z, Z plasty, I should say, or Z plasty as the I Z plasty, oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really a way of lengthening a scar and uh, it can be used for scar revisions, but also, uh, a lot, and a lot of these derive from sort of a, a, a burn reconstruction where you're trying to you know, deepen web spaces and that could be, uh, that could be in the hands, uh, that could be around the eyes, around the mouth. And there are, again, a Z-plasty is, is the, the, its most basic form, but things like a, a jumping man flap, which is two opposing Z-plasties with a V to Y release in the, in the, in the center of it. And that, that effectively creates a kind of U-shaped release of a scar. Yeah, and these can be really hard, practically impossible to truly understand and visualize without a visual. And so a podcast format, you know, this can be challenging. But if you listeners are listening to uh, our YouTube channel version of this episode, you'll see that I've included uh, all the pictures so that you can understand a little better what we mean when we say a rhomboid flap or a Z-plasty. Um, and Dr. Fries, just to hammer this home, because I know this is going to be a, a source of confusion, what... This is, we're talking about random skin flaps here. Why is this different from a skin graft? Because it has its integrated blood supply and doesn't rely on graining its blood supply from the bed of the wound that you're engrafting it into. Right. So a, a, a good example, so the examples I gave have, have had neck reconstruction, but um, now we, we typically these days use free flaps to reconstruct lower extremity wounds, but you can use random local flaps uh, to cover the, the fracture uh, you typically you lift the fascia cutaneous flap turn it over the bone which would never be able to take a skin graft but you would then skin graft the donor site where you lifted your your random local flap up to put it on and that that's quite a good um a visualization of the problem which is that the the bone won't take the skin graft therefore it needs the flap but the skin graft can close the donor site for the flap that, that is sense. a really good example i have to include a picture of that <laughs> Let's move back to flaps. So there's lots of different kinds of flaps. We've talked about skin flaps. There are also things called muscle flaps. And I think this is an archetypical category of flap that every surgeon is familiar with. Big latissimus flap that we've mentioned, or gracilis flap, pectoralis flap. There's a classic way to classify muscle flaps called the Mathis-Nahai classification. And I think it's a great way to organize our thinking about muscle flaps. I actually used this mnemonic I learned as a medical student, the phrase, 10 graceful glutes sat on a latrine. Uh, <laughs> you, you might have to tell, tell us what that is. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's one to five, yeah. So, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but the, but the mnemonic helps with, um, with examples of, of, of these different classifications. So 10 graceful glutes sat on a latrine, the 10, 10 is tensor fascia lata flap, which is an example of a type one flap that has a... Yeah. A, a dominant pedicle. Yep. Um, so 10 graceful gracilis, gracilis flap, type two flap, which has a, I believe a dominant and a minor pedicle. That's correct. Um, yep. 10 graceful glutes, so gluteal, gluteus flap, type three, it's got two dominant pedicles. 10 graceful glutes sat, sartorius, sartorius is a type four flap, which is just supplied by segmental perforators. And finally, uh, latrine for latissimus dorsi, an example of the type five flap, which is supplied by dominant pedicle and segmental perforators. Spot on. And, and, and you can already sort of, just by explaining, you can kind of see the, the importance of, of that classification. So for example, the, the, the sartorius uh, cannot be a free flap because it has a multi-segmented uh, uh, blood supply. And now a type, a type one and type two have a dominant blood supply that can be used for a, can be used for a free flap. Um, and the type three, so the rectus is another example of a type three where it has a, a two different blood supplies which each could be used. So the, the, the proximal or distal pedicles can be used. Mm -hmm. And the latissimus, uh, yeah, ab absolutely. The, the, the dominant supply can be used for the free flap, but actually the distal supply can't because it's sort of the, multiple perforators so whilst it can be used in a pedicled manner as a turn down flap based on its distal um, blood supply uh, it can be used as a free flap from the uh, from its named um, 
uh, pedicle. So yeah, that, that's uh, that, that's why that uh, classification is so is so powerful. What are the common workhorse muscle flaps that you're you find yourself using the most in practice that and that you think you know a general surgeon like myself should be aware of and and should be aware of the anatomy for? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the most common uh, free muscle flap, certainly latissimus dorsi, is the biggest muscle in the body, a uh, huge, huge range of applications. And if you're looking for something, if you, you know, for your biggest wounds, that's, that is pretty much your go-to. Um, the gracilis flap is another very, com very, very commonly used flap. Again, it's, a, it, it's an almost unnoticeable donor a deficit to, to use it. Um, and it's a, it's a very good size for most lower extremity wounds in particular. Uh, and, and as I alluded to at the very, very beginning of the podcast, it has a functional uh, fun uh, ability as well. And that can be, uh, I mentioned that it's elbow flexion or indeed facial reanimation. Um, so that's, that's certainly, they're probably the most commonly used muscle free flaps. And then there's a whole array of pedicle uses. Uh, again, the latissimus is, is commonly used, particularly for the breast. The gracilis is commonly used, particularly for the perineum and groin. And you, you may be familiar, particularly orthopedic listeners, um, the gastrocnemius muscle, very commonly used to reconstruct um, uh, infected arthroplasties of the knee and uh, the uh, rectus femoris, commonly used to reconstruct uh, infected arthroplasty of the hip, although um, your listeners are aware that is a less common situation, but that, that's, um, that's where that's often used. So th those are some of the most common uh, muscle flaps. Can you, uh, so we heard on one of our previous plastics um, episodes, the, the surgical steps of, of harvesting uh, gracilis flap. Why don't you walk us through your, uh, your steps of taking the latissimus dorsi? Absolutely. Well, um, so there's a, the, one of the interesting things is, is how you position the patient um, because oftentimes, uh, well, traditionally you would position the patient in the, in the uh, lateral position. Uh, that may not be convenient, particularly for lower limb trauma, where um, oftentimes the orth orthopedic surgeons prefer the patient to be supine. Um, and it's obviously great to be able to do con concomitant uh, flat raise whilst they're doing the bony fixation. So um, certainly where, where I trained, we often used to raise the latissimus with the patient effectively supine. Um, and that's actually, it's actually easier than you think, because if you come in anteriorly, the, the muscle kind of drops back, um, showing it's, it's hard to describe on a, on a podcast, but actually as, as you come anteriorly onto the pedicle, the muscle drops away. Um, and it's actually quite an, quite an easy way of elevating the flap. So um, absolutely, you can either have the patient on their, on their back or on their side, um, prep the arm so that you can uh, sort of move, move the arm. And then uh, with, again, with the latissimus, there's options. So you may want a skin paddle uh, or you may simply want the muscle itself. Um, and uh, you plan your incision based on that um, decision-making. And again, how you orient the skin paddle um, depends on where you're trying to, uh, it depends on where you're trying to uh, insert the flap. Um, in the pedicled uh, situation to, for the breast, you, you put the, put the orient the skin paddle at 90 degrees to how you want it to be on the chest wall. So that, that's one way of, of thinking about it. But then once you've, once you've divided the skin around your skin paddle, um, you uh, ele elevate the flap um, there's, there's really two sort of pitfalls. Uh, one is to um, uh, elevate the sartorius along with the latissimus and the other is to elevate part of the trapezius along with the uh, latissimus. And, and my tip for any trainees listening is, is to go under the fascia and stay right on the muscle of the latissimus. If you, if you stay right on the latissimus muscle, you, you won't get uh, lost in, in that way. Uh, the temptation sometimes is to try and leave some sort of loose areola tissue over the muscle um, but if you, if you do that, you can sometimes get find yourselves in the uh, in, in the wrong plane. So, so once you develop that plane, um, you then uh, stay close to it. Yeah, exactly. You stay, I, yeah, I find myself staying close to the muscle, close to the muscle over and over when I'm uh, assisting uh, the residents uh, raise, raise the flap. Um, and then um, the next pitfall really is is the uh, is the pedicle um, because the the uh, excuse me um, the serratus branch. Um, can can lead to some confusion, and it's um, and I have unfortunately heard of a couple of examples where uh, people have divided the uh, the actual thoracodorsal by mistake, and even had to reanastomose it microsurgically um, to maintain their flap. Um, and again, <laughs> my my advice is to uh, is to define the pedicle 
um, pr pretty pretty comprehensively. And uh, if you're in any doubt, leave the leave the um, uh, leave the serratus branch intact until you're absolutely happy uh, where the pedicle is. And um, it's very, one of the most reliable flaps and one of the most um, uh, consistent anatomically. Um, but I have seen some variations where the where the pedicle can enter the latissimus a little bit further down the chest wall than you than you imagine. And I think that's where people get into trouble by um, by uh, mistaking it for the um, serratus branch. But then once you've um, once you've defined that, then again you you uh, you, you can disinsert the muscle. Um, you know, as, as high up um, as, as you need, and um, of course, it also has has a has a nerve which, um, you, as a free flap, you have to divide it. In the pedicle situation, you can leave it, um, or you can divide it. And there, there's a sort of a debate about which is the best. Um, people suggest there may be less atrophy of the muscle if you maintain the nerve, um, versus um, you may get more animation if you maintain the nerve. Um, personally, I tend to divide it. <laughs> Um, what what is what are the general limits for where the latissimus dorsi can be used um, in a pedicled manner? Okay, well, so pretty much the whole of the the, uh, the anterior chest, and uh, it certainly can go and in the arm. It can go as far as the elbow. Um, so you certainly, in fact, we recently did a pedicle one to cover a um, an open elbow joint, and um, and in the head and neck, it can um, go to the uh, yeah, up into the head and neck region as well. That is really a, a, you know, a wonderful, versatile workhorse flap, like you're saying. I mean, it, it, it's reliable, and uh, like you say, it can be used in a lot of different spots. Mm -hmm. um, let's, uh, let's move on uh, from muscle flaps now and talk about kind of a, a newer kit on the block, the perforator flap, because I think this is an, another concept that can be very confusing. Um, what is a perforator, and what is a perforator flap, Dr. Fries? Well, much, much debated. Um, so... <laughs> So my mentor, Professor Wei, uh, will tell you that a perforator is a, a perforated flap is any flap where the uh, vessel supplying the, uh, the skin perforates the deep fascia, i.e. it comes through muscle and you perform intramuscular dissection to get from the source vessel um, to the fasciocutaneous or the adipocutaneous cutaneous component of the flap. So. Why, why that, that sounds pretty straightforward. Why would that be contentious? Well, some perf, perforating vessels or some would, are those on a septum which don't actually go through any muscle. So are those true perforator flaps? Well, that's, that's, the, sort of, um, that's the sort of controversy. Um, so of course, an example would be a radial forearm flap, uh, which uh, has a septal perforator coming from the uh, radial artery that supplies the fasciocutaneous component. Of course, the anterolateral thigh flap in about just over 10% of cases also has a septal blood supply without any intramuscular component. So that, that's, a, that's an anatomic variation of the flap. Um, but essentially, you have a, a, a dominant blood supply. So in the anterolateral thigh, it's the uh, lateral descending branch of the uh, circumflex femoral artery. And then there are perforators which go from that dominant vessel to the um, skin paddle that you're using. What are the uh, you know the semantics of how how the how this vessel is is perforating, whether it be muscle or a septum? Uh, so those semantics aside, what are the clinical and technical implications of doing a perforator flap of harvesting a perforator flap versus you know a big axially supplied flap like a like a muscle flap? Yeah, absolutely. So. The, the, the main benefit is that you don't have any, well, there is much less donor site morbidity in terms of muscle damage because you're not taking any functional muscle. You're taking the skin and, and fascia overlying it and the blood vessel supplying it and leaving the muscles exactly where they are. And that's the concept behind, for example, the, the Dieppe flap, the deep inferior epigastric perforator versus a tram flap. So the, the Dieppe flap um, takes the same fat and skin as the tram, but leaves the uh, rectus abdominis muscle behind. So in theory and in practice, there's less donor site morbidity from damaging the rectus abdominis muscle. So that's a, a, a modern advance on, um, on the former concept. And again, in terms of illustrating concepts, 
the rex abdominis muscle was used for flap was used for breast reconstruction first as a pedicle flap then it was realized it could be used as a free flap and therefore it didn't have the bulge in the abdomen as the muscle was turned into the breast and then it was advanced even further to be used as a perforator flap uh, where the muscle was left behind completely so there was no donor site uh, well, excuse me less donor site morbidity than if the muscle was taken I imagine that you know the uh, reliability, the the consistency of perforator anatomy is uh, less than you know a, a muscle's axial dominant supply. How do you identify that a perforator is going to be adequate for your for your purposes? Absolutely, and the, uh, a shiver's just gone up my spine as I think of per perforators I've looked at and hope might would support, supply my flap. <laughs> Absolutely right, and, and concomitantly, you know, uh, the duration of the operation as you perform this, what can be a tedious intramuscular dissection without damaging these tiny vessels um, versus just taking the muscle uh, with with the uh, with the blood vessel and uh, and sort of having done with it, as it were. Um, absolutely. So, you know. Uh, we, we have an armamentarium of flaps, which we consider to have reliable perforators based on you know, experience. And, and once, you, once you find the, the perforator you're looking for, essentially, if it's visibly pulsating, uh, which, they, which they normally are, then um, you, you can be pretty, pretty happy it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna work. Um, if, if it's not visibly pulsating, then you, know, you have to sort of make a decision on whether, whether or not you think your flap's gonna be supported. And that's, uh, that can be done clinically. So um, you know you could you, if you've raised the entire flap and it's on its perforator, you can look at the skin edges and, and see if the, there's some nice slow red dermal bleeding coming from the edges of the flap. And of course now we can use some um, spy technology, so intersigning green, to um, uh, to define the, um, the, the the vascularity of the flap, and that can be extended to help us. Uh, first of all, you know if there are areas of the flap that aren't viable. So some so for example, a very large. Uh, DIP flap, so-called zone four, the most peripheral zone away from the, the perforator, that's not always perfused. And so you could use the spy to define which parts of the flap is viable and discard the bit which isn't. Um, the second thing you can do with the spy uh, is if you have a flap with multiple perforators. So for example, the anterolateral thigh flap often has more than one. And if you want to design it as a split flap, you might uh, sequentially clamp each perforator, use the spy to see which segments are being supplied and then divide it on that basis. Um, that's a, yeah. So it's like a magical machine that kind of shows you how, how the, you know, the small blood vessels are perfusing a particular, you know, swath of tissue. Absolutely, absolutely, it's, yeah. It's almost in real time as well. If the anesthesiologist will inject it and then within about 10 to 30 seconds, you'll have your picture on the screen, yeah. What about even before you're, you're going to surgery, do you ever do like CT scans to, to identify perforators or um, is it just, you know, do Dopplering the, the area of, of a potential perforator uh, prior to surgery? What's your algorithm for, for making well, sure that you're going to have something, you know, there uh, or, or knowing approximately where it is so that as you're doing your dissection, you, uh, you know, where to start slowing down. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. So yeah. Uh, in the, um, so certainly with the DIPs, it's, it's my practice and I think most people's practice now to get a CT angio um, prior, to the, um, prior to doing the case. And that helps you define where the perforators are going to be. And as you say, it does help you know when to start slowing down. And some of the early work when this was start, um, first started suggested that um, surgeons were about an hour faster during their operations when they had a CT angio guiding them onto the, uh, the sort of the dominant perforator for their flap. Um, I must say that's the only area I use a CT angio to look at perforators. Uh, we do use uh, Dopplers, particularly for the antilapsal thigh flap, to try and do Doppler out your perforator. And with experience, that becomes um, reasonably, reasonably accurate to know where the, uh, to know where the, uh, the perforator is going to be. Although um, I have to say, I've not been in the situation of not finding one and aborting the flap and then not finding a perforator, if that makes sense. So. Mm -hmm. It may just be a comfort blanket. <laughs> uh, how about bone flaps? This is kind of a, an, an area of flap reconstruction that I know I don't know very much about. It seems like it's like the world of orthopedics or something like that, or certainly plastic surgery. Um, what is there to know about bone flaps? What bones are frequently being used? And um, 
you know, how, how is the, how are you using the bone flaps most often? Absolutely. So yeah, the most commonly used by far uh, bone flap is the fibula uh, free flap. And um, I remember it was one of the very first free flaps I ever saw raised. And, uh, you know, I, I was um, working in the sort of the military uh, receiving hospital back in the UK. And I, I thought it was some kind of magic that this, that this could happen. And I think it was one of the things that first got me interested in becoming a microsurgeon. Um, but certainly, yeah, the fibula can be raised. Um, you, you have to leave the top and bottom sort of six centimeters, but you can get about 20 centimeters of bone uh, from most patients. And the donor deficit is, uh, well, in, in the sort of non-athletes is, is pretty minimal. And then you, you have this length of bone um, and it has a segmental blood supply coming from the um, perineal artery. And so the bone itself can then be shaped. So the whilst it seems like a long thin strut of bone and what might you do with it well actually you can shape that in uh, in, a, in, a, in a huge number of ways so the most common way it's used is to reconstruct the mandible particularly after cancer and occasionally trauma uh, reconstruction but it can be um it can be shaped to form a uh, 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 the curve of the, of the mandible and then the reconstruction plate um is then screwed to the to the fibula in that manner um, I've used it frequently for pelvic reconstruction. So uh, in pelvic sarcoma, where a hemipelvectomy is performed, um, the acetabulum effectively floats and the patient has a, um, would, would have a, a very debilitating sort of leg length discrepancy and complete loss of support of their femur, but a double barrel fibula um, can be placed between the top of the acetabulum and the sacrum um, to hold that length, leg length out and the patient is able to walk um, on that afterwards. The bone, um, the bone hypertrophies when it's put into that situation, um, which is uh, which is fantastic. I, I want to pivot now to uh, to microsurgery, um, something that you uh, are a specialist in, um, something that I think a lot of uh, general surgeons um, don't see a lot of. But um, just in general, what what does what does the OR look like when you're doing microsurgery? If you can paint us a picture of of what the what your operating theater looks like, how you've set yourself up, and what the challenges that you're facing as you as you're doing an anastomosis. I mean, pretend, for example, perhaps that you're that you're doing a uh, you know a deep flap anastomosis, and and tell us what what your technique is and and, and the the key pearls that uh, achieve success for you. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, for me, this is the, one of the most wonderful moments of any day is uh, when, when the microscope is brought in and, uh, you know, we, we're able to, um, to uh, perform our microvascular anastomoses. Um, as you can probably imagine, uh, the actual sewing of the two vessels uh, should be the easy bit uh, because it, it's all about how you got there. It's all about preparing the recipient vessels uh, in, in the most sort of uh, atraumatic way. It's all about raising the flap without damaging the perforator or damaging the vessel, uh, not, not sort of thermal injuries from, you know, overjudicious um, bovying, not, not having crushed the vessels between the forceps as you're handling it or anything like this. Um, and then it's about the setup. So it's about, you know, the, the, blood, the, the two vessels just sort of kissing together exactly as you want them uh, with no tension either in the recipient or in the flap with no twists, no, no kinks, you're not asking it to turn around corners. Um, and then the soft tissue around, um, not, not compressing um, on the vessel. So um, in the chest for the, for the DIP, uh, you have a certain amount of flexibility in terms of where you put the pedicle. Um, in head and neck reconstruction, often there's a neck dissection. So there's often some flexibility there. Where I found it most challenging has been in the lower limb, where you're trying to use the uh, often the posterior tibial uh, artery and vein as your recipient, but the, the musculature around it is really quite tight. So how, how you position, how you orient your vessels um, can be quite a challenge in that situation. Um, so certainly the ergonomics of the flap and the ergonomics of the pedicle are, are critical and then the ergonomics of the operators. So you, you can stand, you can sit, but you must be certainly be absolutely comfortable um, in the position you're in. Um, you should have your, your elbows bent to 90 degrees, have your wrists supported. So we may use gown packs or something like this um, so that really you've taken all the weight off your hands. And then it's a question of, um, it, it should be nice and straightforward to put your uh, 10 sutures uh, in a one millimeter vessel and get it to flow first time. Tell, tell me about your, the actual anastomotic technique. Um, perhaps you can paint a picture for us uh, about how, how you're setting these two vessel ends together and how exactly you're, you're 
actually coupling them? Absolutely. So again, there are, there are various different ways which are suited to different locations in, in the body. Uh, personally, I like to use a double opposing clamp. Um, so I, I, I like to bring the vessels together. Uh, it's a, it's a clamp, there are effectively two clamps uh, ma mounted on a, uh, on a little, little rails and you can use that to adjust the tension uh, and bring the vessels together. And uh, I, I typically sew uh, the, the top and bottom, so 180, 180, and then I, then I sew the front wall. Uh, I, I actually like to use a, 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 I like to run the stitch initially um, because I find it, I, I can then visualize uh, inside the vessel without tying the knots because then I can see that I haven't back walled the vessel. Also, as the previous suture is placed, it tends to splint the vessel open in an, in an inverted manner. And so once I've done the whole wall, it also uses less stitch. Once I've done the whole wall, I then tie it off, each one individually. I then flip it and do the same on the back. And, that's, uh, and that gives you good visualization. Uh, it avoids you um, catching the back wall uh, and you can be pretty confident you, you've, got a, you've got a nice anastomosis. Um, that being said, you know, sometimes you can't get the double opposing clamp in the space you're using. Um, clearly you can't use that if you're doing an end to side anastomosis. Um, so you have to be trained in all the other different ways of doing it. So if I can't fit that clamp in and I'm using two individual clamps, um, I typically then do the back wall first and I put three stitches in the back wall to, to give it the strength. And then I go kind of alternating around it. And again, that's just the way of avoiding back, back walling your anastomosis, which of course is a sort of dreaded um, uh, mistake to make. Um, other issues are uh, making sure you take a, a, a full thickness bite of the vessel wall. Uh, because if you if you assume if you take a partial bite, you'll you'll invert the near vessel edge, and of course that's likely to cause a thrombosis sec uh, secondary to a turbulent flow. Um, and then if we start to get into the nuances of it, um, certainly in the lower extremity, you can have uh, calcified vessels. Uh, you could certainly encounter those in older patients, hypertensive, diabetic smokers, etc. You know, with an open fracture, maybe an infected limb that you're trying to reconstruct, and those can be the, some of the hardest you'll encounter. And uh, my tip for that is to suture from the flap into the recipient vessel so that you're pushing the needle from the inside out. So any calcium you're pushing into the vessel wall mm -hmm. and laminating into the vessel uh, lumen, which is obviously a nightmare. And um, it, it, some, sometimes you can look at it and think, this is not going to be a good day. And actually, in, it's amazing what can you can get to work in the end. You mentioned end-to-side anastomoses. What do we have? What, what are the differences between the end-to-end, -end, the end-to-side? When would you use which? And do we have research that um, that compares the two? Absolutely. So you know, um, I guess the most common uh, areas of using end-to-side. So in the arterial situation, um, in the lower extremity, it's um, I, I prefer to use an end-to-side, and a lot of people do. And, and really, there are two benefits. Firstly. You're not uh, you're not um, interrupting the distal flow of the vessel, and there have been reports of vessel of you know limb loss following uh, you know this sort of anastomosis, although they're they're pretty rare. Um, and uh, so that's one benefit. And secondly, the observation and it was uh, Marco Godina who, who, who was sort of one of the great doyens of microsurgery you know, observed that when you when you cut a, when you divide a vessel in two, it, it spasms down, doesn't it, and it sort of stops bleeding. Whereas you know, and we all know this from being in the OR. If you if you shimp across a vessel, you can never get the thing to stop bleeding <laughs> because because that spasmodic, uh, you know, that evolutionary spasmodic mechanism actually doesn't work. If anything, it works against us. And so he thought, well, if my vessels spasm, why don't I cut them end to side, and then then they won't spasm. So so there's there's two benefits to doing it. Um, uh, it's definitely technically more challenging, um, but you know, like any like any skill in surgery, you practice it enough, and uh, you get perfectly good at it. Um, I think most of us have the experience in the, in the lower extremity that actually once we've divided the vessel, there's all, there seems to be quite a lot of backflow from the other end. So, you know, probably that, you know, there's, there's satisfactory blood supply um, anyway, but that's certainly, that's certainly the most common arterial way of doing it. Um, and in terms of the vein, often head and neck surgery will do an end to side venous anastomosis onto the internal jugular vein. Um, and that's, that's convenient for a couple, a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, the neck dissection may have removed, uh, may not be that many veins left available in terms of branches, though often you can find a side branch um, to use. But secondly, you have uh, you know almost limitless variability where you can stick your vein 
onto the uh, IJ because it's, you know, it's, a, it's such a big structure in, in, in the bed of the uh, nectar section. And I suppose thirdly, uh, we, we actually, we always aim for a, um, a, a small to large size mismatch in veins because the larger recipient vein has a sort of suction effect uh, we, we think and is beneficial to keeping the anastomosis open. So, so going into side on the on the IJ sort of augments that as well. So um, those are the two most common, and, and of course they require hand sew anastomosis. You can't use a coupler for that. Um, so again, these are all sort of technical um, variations. You know. Let's talk about the coupler then, because you know I remember when I was a medical student uh, watching my first deep flap, uh, I noticed that they were sewing the artery and they were using a coupler for the vein. Why were they doing that, Dr. Fries? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know. I, and what is a coupler, actually, just to, to, to get us started on the right foot here? Some people might not be aware of what a, what a venous coupler looks like. Okay, so it's a kind of a silicone. Oh. <laughs> um, so a, a coupler is a sort of a silicone ring with, um, uh, with, with, a, a series, with six spikes in each, in each side. And effectively, it's a way of uh, bringing two, the end, two vein ends together. So you, you pass the vein within the lumen of the coupler, loop the vein over the, over the little spikes, and then it's on a uh, spring-loaded compression uh, device. And as you close the device, you bring the two, the two ends together and the, and the spikes on the inside of the coupler mate with each other. And effectively, you have an anastomosis which is splinted open by this ring. So you, you have a venous anastomosis that, that can't be sort of uh, squished, as it were. And um, you know it's uh, everted because the, uh, you've, you've pulled the vein through it and there's a cuff of vein on the outside of the coupler. And um, they definitely save you a lot of time. And um, however, there, there are some drawbacks. Um, I've seen the, uh, first of all, you can mount them incorrectly and then you can't close them. I've, had, I've been in that situation where you, you can close them by hand, but um, it's uh, a sort of a heart in mouth moment as you realize what, what's happened. Um, also, you know, the, 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 the coupler can, there are concerns the coupler might, might twist or, or, uh, or fall down on, on the vein itself, sort of compressing it. But I mean, I think in practice, that's probably sort of a, a risk that's sort of unfounded. Um, and then there are variations. So there are flow couplers, and I, I find them particularly useful. And um, these are couplers with a Doppler probe that's actually implanted in the, in the coupler itself. And these are fantastic uh, for, for monitoring uh, muscle flaps which are quite difficult to monitor clinically. Um, certainly by the time a muscle appears that it's, that it's um, in, in trouble as a flap, uh, often damage has been done. Whereas with a fasciocutaneous flap, the skin gives you a pretty close window into what's going on beneath and you can pick up quite quickly if there's a problem. So um, I'm, I don't particularly mind using a flow coupler device or indeed a, 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 any other implantable Doppler device for a cutaneous flap, but for a muscle flap, I think it's quite important to have that uh, monitoring capability. Why, why don't we use couplers, I mean, everywhere? Where, what are the technical limitations there? Yeah, so I think uh, arterial couplers are sort of being in invented, but basically the, the artery is just is too stiff um, to pass through a, a, a vein coupler. Um, so you, you really need to have a thin-walled vessel that you can use. Um, so an, an arterial wall isn't, isn't really suitable. Um, and the, the couplers... You know, the, the smallest, I think, is, is, a, is a 0.5 millimeter, and they go to about three millimeters, the ones we normally, normally for, a, for an ALT or a gracilis, you tend to find yourself asking for a two or a two and a half millimeter coupler, or at least I do. <laughs> so you were starting to, you were mentioning flow couplers, and I think this is a great uh, time to pivot to discussing how, how we're taking care of these flaps post-operatively. So that flow coupler you mentioned is a, um, you know, the coupler ring has the Doppler probe in it. You were alluding to the fact that sometimes you'll leave a Doppler probe on the anastomosis, um, which yep. you can then monitor, um, you know, in the ICU afterwards. Uh, what other monitoring um, adjuncts are you using? And, and they're all backing up ultimately your exams. So perhaps you can talk about um, you know, the, the, the foundations of, of post-operative monitoring for a flap as well. Absolutely. So certainly uh, clinical evaluation um, is, the, uh, is the sort of mainstay. And then you have these adjuncts to help us. Um, the, the bottom line is you're, you, know, you, you want to optimize your patient, optimize your flap. So the first things we, we uh, you know, and it's a, it's a sort of microvascular perfusion 
phenomenon that we're, that we're dealing with. So we want our patients to be pain-free. Uh, we want them, we want their uh, vital signs to be normal. And we want them to be normotensive. Um, a map of 75 is said to be optimum. Uh, we certainly you know, don't want them tachycardic. Uh, we don't want them to be um, you know, pyrexial. And um, we also, there's a, there's a debate about warming. So it's, some people like to warm the patient. Some people like to warm the flap. Um, it's sort of agreed and not the patient. Um, but uh, certainly, certainly keep them one way or another, keep them warm. And then we, we're pretty closely monitoring the urine output because obviously, you know, just in any other uh, perfusion setting, that, that's a good, uh, a good indication that you're achieving end organ and in this case, end flap uh, perfusion. So we're pretty keen on a urine output of 0.5 to 1 uh, mils per kilo uh, per hour for the patients. And um, so those are the sort of things we're doing to optimize the patient. And in terms of monitoring, Again, there's a, a distinction between there between fasciocutaneous and muscle flaps, but um, I alluded to fasciocutaneous flap being being quite a sort of clear window. So clearly, it should look like normal skin, uh, and if it doesn't, then um, you know there may be a reason for that. Uh, there, if it's so, if it's white and doesn't, there's no cap refill, and that implies there's an arterial inflow problem. Um, clearly, if the as the capillary refill becomes more and more brisk, uh, that implies that there's a venous outflow problem. Ultimately, of course, if it, if it looks congested or purple, then there's almost certainly a venous outflow problem. And that's, um, and that's the way to sort of how we look at those. Um, some people like to put a marking stitch overlying the, where the perforator enters the flap and that can be monitored by an external Doppler. Um, again, that's, that's one way of doing things. Personally, I think it can be quite confusing because you can pick up the underlying um, vasculature. So for example, if it's a lower extremity flap, you know, you, you might put your Doppler on and, and just pick up the posterior tibial artery two centimeters above where your flap anastomosis is, and that may not be, it may give you falsely reassuring information, for example. So you really have to look at all the whole thing in the, in the round. And then um, I mentioned the, uh, the cuff of devices, which, are, which I personally find more useful with muscles, but there are um, transcutaneous uh, pulse oximetry devices that we can use for skin flaps. Um, Again, I personally, I don't use them in my practice. I know some people uh, find, find them very useful. Um, I did try and use them in a research setting. It turns out pig skin doesn't work quite as well as human skin with them, but that's, that's another story. Um, so that, that's another option. And I, and I remember being very impressed years ago uh, by seeing meetings with American surgeons who had a phone app connected to their, uh, to their transcutaneous doctors, and they could tell you just how their Dieppe was doing from the comfort of their own home. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's uh, certainly an option, but uh, not not one I pursued myself. That and would then, keep me awake, at, uh, I think, <laughs> all I night. Think, <laughs> I think so. I think I'd be the same, just staring at it. Um, and then, uh, with respect to the muscle, again, harder to judge clinically. Uh, now, you know, it should look nice and um, you know healthy and pink, like a like a normal muscle with a skin graft. Of course, muscle flaps have to have skin graft on them. That's a point I could have made earlier. Um, and again, you may mesh that skin graft or you may not. I, I tend not to mesh it because um, I think the flap's fragile as it is. So having as much skin on as, as possible is, is better than a meshed graft. Although a mesh does let you monitor it possibly slightly easier. So again, you, know, you pay your money and take your choice really. Um, so you might be able to see the flap muscle may look um, sort of beefy and purple and congested. Um, so you may be able to monitor it that way. Although in my experience, that's quite a late phenomenon. Uh, of course, if the skin graft itself doesn't take, then you can be pretty sure your muscle may have uh, may not be fully perfused. Um, and as I say, because they, and again, of course, that's a late sign as well, because initially the flap or the graft will stick to the flap. Um, so I find those sorts of clinical monitoring quite challenging. Um, and again, the external Doppler is is a possibility, but again, you get the um, you get sort of transmitted signals and vessels beneath the flap, which may confuse you. So for that reason, I've I've always used a, uh, a couple of, a, um, I always use an implantable Doppler device, maybe the flow coupler or maybe one of the other options on the market. And I put it on the vein because it gives you the outflow. Of course, it's the end of the circuit. So uh, if it goes down, it could be the artery, it could be the vein, but either way, you, you need to re-explore it. And some of my colleagues like to put one on the artery and one on the vein. And most of the monitoring boxes have two, two mm -hmm. signals. So you can flip from one to the other. And that's, I mean, that provides a lot of reassurance. Yeah, you can hear the you know the pulsatile uh, signal from the artery and the uh, the waves on the beach of uh, of that vein. That's Whale song. I always hear it uh, explained. Uh, when when are flaps typically going down, and what is the most the, what is the usual suspect? Which of the two connections? 
Okay, yes. So I start a bead of sweat on my brow just thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, if you can get your flat through the first 24 hours, then you're, you're, you're probably going to probably gonna be fine. Um, and if you can get it through five days, then you'll almost certainly be fine. Um, I can only think of two in my, in my experience that have, that have gone down um, after a week. Um, one, one of those was due to a sort of a delayed dehiscence of the inset of the flap leading to a salivary fistula, which, um, which seemed to desiccate the vein. And again, you know, that was nine days out, very disappointing. But these are the sorts of things you're, you're dealing with when you're trying to get one millimeter vessels to, to join with each other. But the most common, of course, uh, early, in the early stages, uh, you know, some post-op swelling, dressings are too tight, um, or, or simply a hematoma provided, applying extrinsic pressure to the anastomosis and of course those are easily correctable um it could be then a, a technical failure so a thrombosis at the anastomosis so uh you back wall the anastomosis or a, a flap of intima um that, that's caused a thrombosis and all those things will manifest within sort of 24 hours and, and that's why we're sort of so careful to monitor them and and why you know if you can return to the or within an hour or two of picking that up you've actually got a reasonable chance of salvaging your flap uh, flaps I've seen go down at the three or four day stage is 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 much um, is much rarer, and I have to say I've never salvaged one. So I, I think that's because there's an intrinsic problem um, uh, with with the vasculature, and I, I'm, I'm 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 pleased to tell you I can only think of two off the top of my head, and neither of them worked out. They're both in very heavy smokers. When you do go back, what is the usual protocol for you know exploring your anastomoses, and when how do you figure out which one is the is the problem anastomosis, and um, how do you go about taking it apart and and clearing the the clot? Yeah, absolutely, and and, it, and this really depends on what you see. So you know, you you get get everything set up as as, as you want. You have know, an extremity flap, you may even have a tourniquet on the leg. Uh, you know, normally it's a pretty miserable environment. You know, there's there's clot, there's there's a partially dead flap. Um, and you know, and, and you're trying to find your my, tiny vessels, and you can imagine the, the painstaking care you took to set this all up in the first place. And now you're you're guddling around in a, in a hematoma, trying to fight um, this meticulous work that you did. But that being said, you know, all, all is not lost. In an arterial situation, often the vein um, will will stay completely patent. And um, I, you know, I, I know from uh, from my sort of experience on this sort of journey you, you know you, you start out being very nervous about any stasis in the vein um but actually they they actually can be quite tolerant so where where i found that an artery to have gone down um, i've actually had success without even exploring the vein uh, it simply was obviously open and flowing and the, once the artery has been sorted out the, the flap has been fine so um so that's that's something uh, the most common thing is is to find both the clotted because it's most commonly the vein's gone down in which case the the artery's gone down now then you've kind of got an intra-flap problem. And um, in this situation, I take the flap off completely. I flush it with some heparinized saline. And then, uh, you know, you, you have to make a, a sort of a judgment call on how long you think it was down for as whether you think you can salvage it. Um, I have used streptokinase on a couple of occasions. Um, I have to say, again, I don't want to make it sound like I've had lost dozens of flaps in my career, but uh, the couple of occasions I've used it, I have been able to reestablish flow. Um, but actually, on both occasions, ended up with partial flap necrosis. So I think whilst it was was effective, um, you know, it wasn't a magic bullet. So uh, so that but that so that's certainly an option. And then with the streptokinase, um, you know, there's a, a protocol. Effectively, you, you clamp the vein, inject it into the flap, leave it in for 15 minutes, then wash it out, and then and then uh, and then reattach it. Um, and is the idea to kind of, you know, I, in my mind, I've, I'm imagining that the flap's gone down and the microvasculature is just, you know, all clotted downstream. And that, that's what your streptokinase is for, is to reestablish, you know, all those connections in the, in the intricate microcirculation of that flap. Exactly, exactly. Because it's the capillary bed. You're right. You're right. At the end of the day, you know, you, you may be able to get the pipes in and pipes out to work, but actually, you know, and it's a sort of... Uh, it's sort of a paradox, isn't it, of the of the of the, of the technique, which is you know you focus on the, the 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 vein in and the vein out, but ultimately the flap, the the edges of the flap have got to heal to your, to mm -hmm. uh, to the deep you're trying to reconstruct, um, and and that's what's been damaged by the microcirculation in this in this case. Yeah. So you know, speaking of streptokinase, it reminds me to ask you, what is the current state of the art in terms of anticoagulation after um, microsurgery? Great question. So nothing's been proven to be of any benefit. Um, 
that being said, all, obviously all of our patients are on low molecular weight heparin for uh, you know venous thromboembolism uh, prevention, and certainly different units have different cocktails that they will uh, swear by um, as as being uh, as as being uh, optimal. So you know low dose aspirin, um, intravenous heparin. Um, they're, the, they're the most common, uh, commonly used dextran as possible for a while, but gone out of favor. Um, so that's, that's rarely used these days. Um, so, you know, in a, in a, in a technically uh, well-performed flap, you, you'll be fine. I think when you're, when you're trying to use sort of um, uh, pharmacologic agents to salvage your flap, you, you, you probably, uh, you, you, you might be fighting it a little bit. Um, that, that being said, if, if I have if I have had to sort of redo anastomosis or if there's been some clot around, I will give um, an intravenous heparin bolus at the time of revising it. Certainly. And uh, another, uh, you know, along the same line, it's a favorite um, kind of cool thing that happens sometimes. But uh, leeches, what, when, when, when do you pull out the leeches? Why would you pull out the leeches? Do you do we still pull out the leeches? Again, I try and avoid leeches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. So, so leeches certainly have a role, and and of course they actually have less of a role in pre-flap surgery because you know pre-flap surgery is a kind of a binary thing. You know the anastomoses are either running or they're not. If it's clotted off, then there's nothing a leech is going to do to get it to reopen. Unfortunately, however, there are certain circumstances, and in some of the local flaps, so where you're, you're trying, where you're attempting to um, uh, when you're using a pedicle flap and you're trying to open so-called choke vessels to expand your angiosomes. And sometimes the vein can can run a bit behind, um, and in that case, you can you can depressurize the veins by using a leech to externally uh, draw some of the some of the venous uh, return. Um, so that that's a, that's a, an example of it working. Very impressive. Okay, let, let me uh, let me do this last seg- segment of our episode. It's uh, what I've called the specially or potentially confusing terms section, as if not a lot of this stuff already isn't special or potentially confusing, but these are the really potentially confusing ones. Um, delay okay. flap. What is a delay flap? Oh, good. Well, that follows on from what I was just saying about choke vessels. So um, if you, so the delay phenomenon, um, essentially uh, it's a way of increasing the size of a, of a random pattern flap. So you, uh, you would pre-incise uh, sort of, you know, most of the edge of your flap and uh, to, as a way of extending the, uh, the angiosome within it. And then three weeks later, you would lift up the whole flap. So um, typical examples of those are sort of deltopetral flaps in, in the days before microsurgical head and neck reconstruction to try and get some to some more tissue. Um, yeah, so that's an So you make, that, you make that incision and you give the body time for that, that remaining pedicle to really, you know, beef itself up, give it a better yes. chance when you actually do the surgery. Okay, chimeric flap. Okay, so, so slightly debated. Um, but essentially different tissue types uh, within the flap, which may or may not be joined by separate anastomoses. So for example, um, a, a fibular flap could be taken uh, with, a, uh, with the soleus muscle, with the fibular bone and with the skin, all coming from the perineal artery. Now, that a chimera is because, you can, because the muscle is on a separate vessel, so it can, it can move a completely different sort of degree of freedom to the, to the bone and the skin. Um, now, some would call that a combined flap, and they would say a chimera, um, you would require to perform anastomosis within the flap. So, for example, take a muscle from somewhere else and join it to the flap. Now, examples of that are things like um, using a fibula for a mandible, but not having enough skin, and then using an ALT um, to get skin coverage, but joining it to the fibula, for example. Reverse flow flap. Okay, great question. So uh, classic example. So this is where you're using um, the sort of re- uh, blood supply in the opposite direction to which you're, uh, you would expect. So for example, a reverse radial forearm flap, um, you're, you're taking the, the uh, tissue from towards the elbow and turning it down into the hand. So you're relying on the arch being in continuity between the ulnar artery and the radial artery. Um, it would be, would be the, the most common example of that. Supercharged flap or turbocharged flap. Okay, so a supercharged flap, this is where you perform a second anastomosis to augment 
the, uh, the, the, the blood supply. So classic example would be a, a vertical rectus abdominis, as we, as we mentioned earlier. Um, it's a type three flat with two dominant pedicles. So you could uh, use it for a chest reconstruction, so sternal reconstruction, turn up the VRAM, um, and you could, and or you could, you bet you're basing it on the um, the uh, inferior mammary superior epigastric vessels. And as you turn it in, you can then reanastomose the the deep inferior epigastric perforator into the neck. And that's quite that's not uncommonly done because, as, as you can imagine, patients have a lot of chest surgery. Um, you, you you can be nervous about your inflow to your to the rect to the rectus abdominis. Um, from the superior pedicle. So that's that's um, that's supercharging and turbocharging. Prefabrication. And that's so this is a, uh, a technique whereby um, you may put, say, a, a tissue scaffold into your flap in, in its donor site. For example, you might put a cartilage framework for an ear into the forearm uh, prior to making a raising that up as a radial forearm flap. And again, leave that in situ for a certain period of time then raise the radial forearm flap in a normal manner. And venous flap. Yeah, so again, um, I haven't done many of these, but uh, it's a, something I'm uh, very useful for digital reconstruction. So you can take a, um, it's basically a flow through flap where you just take a vein with an overlying bit of skin, um, particularly on the, in, on the volar surface of the wrist. And, um, you connect one end to the artery, one and the other end to the vein. It works like a flow through. So, so there is no, it's not an artery and a vein. It's just one vessel. It's just the vein, and um, certainly a quite elegant way of reconstructing the fingers if you insert it um, into the uh, digital arteries. They're very thin as well. As you can imagine that sort of tissue is very useful. All right, Dr. Freeze. Uh, well, thank you for your time on the show. I think this has been a really wonderful overview of flat-based reconstruction from the plastic surgeon's perspective. Uh, to our listeners, if you've stuck it out to the end, thank you for your amazing support and continued listenership. Remember that we have a merchandise store on our website, BehindTheKnife.org, where you can get some, uh, some awesome BTK swag while simultaneously supporting our channel. Uh, and that really helps us uh, continue to put out great content for you. And one of the best ways to support our podcast is to support our sponsors. And uh, for this episode, that was Green Chef. Don't forget to use that promo code 90surgery, no spaces, 90surgery, to get $90 off and free shipping from Green Chef. It really helps us out. Anyway, until next time, dominate the day. <laughs>